Well, in the city of Jerusalem, uh, there is a solemn memorial, um, a museum, really, um, called Yad Vashem. Some of you are aware of what Yad Vashem is. If you've been to Israel with Tracy and me, you've been to Yad Vashem. I called it a solemn memorial because it is exactly that. It is a memorial which commemorates the tragedy of the systematic extermination of more than 6 million people, uh, Jewish people, under the Nazi regime. It is in every sense of the word a haunting place. If you've ever been to the Yad Vashem, you've left there thinking this, probably, I'm glad I came, I wish I hadn't come. It taught me a lot, I wish I hadn't needed to learn it. It's a haunting building. Really, even in the design and the structure itself, it is, it's built at the entrance like a bunker, a heavy concrete bunker built into the mountain, low ceiling. It's not an inviting entrance at all. And, and when you go in, it's, it's as if you, you almost have to, to, to bow low emotionally and spiritually and uh, empathetically as you go into this building and there are heavy tones of music that are, that are intonating throughout the building and you walk through exhibit after exhibit and you see all of the, of the horrific things that occurred to the Jewish people under Hitler's rule. As you make your way through the museum, you move slowly from darkness and desperation and murder and evil more and more into an open space and a light space and it causes you by design to feel like you're moving from death to life, like you're moving from what has been evil and horrible to something that is more wonderful and beautiful and something that's more hopeful. So much so that the, the other end of the building, and the museum is one long hallway really, the, the other end of the building, the exit, you go in in this dark and low place and you exit in this bright, full glass uh, exit where you can see out over the mountains. And it's almost just as if we've come through the valley of the shadow of death and now we're emerging into life. All of that design of the structure is intentional so that the Yad Vashem is not simply a, a place that commemorates death, but it's a place that is a beacon of hope. Because it doesn't only tell about the six million Jews who were murdered, it tells the story of the survivors and of the descendants of those survivors and of the hope of the nation of Israel and of the Jewish people. Now, many of the survivors whose stories you hear when you're touring Yad Vashem actually survived. They lived because of the kindness and the help that they received from some of their non-Jewish neighbors and from some non-Jewish people who stood in defiance of Nazism and defiance of Hitler, and they provided help for the Jewish people during 
the Holocaust. Some names of some of those Gentiles that you will recognize would be perhaps the Ten Boom family. Corey Ten Boom, I know you know that name. She and her family who in uh, the Netherlands near Amsterdam who offered great hope to the Jewish uh, people, to many Jewish families by hiding them in their home above their clock shop. Or the name Oscar Schindler, which perhaps you had never heard of until a number of years ago, Steven Spielberg produced the movie The Schindler List, which was a a horrible movie and yet a very wonderful movie all at the same time in telling the story of more than a thousand Jews that Schindler saved by employing them in his factories. It's these people like the Ten Booms and like Oscar Schindler uh, who were the Gentile rescuers of so many of those Jews during the Holocaust. And those people, those Gentile people, are remembered at the Yad Vashem as well. Uh, in fact, there's a part of this museum in Jerusalem which is called the Garden of the Righteous Among the Nations. The Garden of the Righteous Among the Nations. And there are more than 14,000 Gentile names inscribed in granite in that garden commemorating these Gentiles. They're called righteous Gentiles. Commemorating the lives of these righteous Gentiles who saved so many Jews from death in a very difficult season. Now I'll tell you all of that this morning before we get into our passage in order to say to you that Our text today is going to tell us about another group of righteous Gentiles who will one day be rewarded for doing very much the same thing, rescuing Jews during another yet future time of tribulation or holocaust that is coming one day in the future. And those righteous Gentiles will be rewarded so much more greatly than just those who have their names etched in stone in Jerusalem. We're going to read about them in Matthew chapter number 25. Let me set the scene for you uh, just before we read, beginning in verse number 31. What you have in our text today is a portion of um, a longer discourse or sermon delivered by Jesus uh, during the final week of his life on the Mount of Olives. Uh, because that's where it was delivered, then this sermon is called the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse takes up all of Matthew 24 and all of Matthew 25. And the sermon was prompted by a question that Jesus was asked by his disciples. Take a look at it in chapter 24 of Matthew and verse 3. Here's the question that they ask. Matthew 24, verse 3 says, As Jesus sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, what, uh, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Tell us, Lord, what will the end of days be like? What, will we, uh, what sign should we look for? How can we know when the end of the world or the end of the age is coming? That's the question. And so the answer to the the question consumes all of chapter 24 and all of chapter number 25. Beginning in verse 4, chapter 24, verse 4, Jesus begins to explain to them what the end of days, the end of the age, or the end of the world will be like. And he explains it all the way through chapter number 25 
illustrating with some parables in chapter number 25, but all the way through, he's describing the difficulties that the world is going to encounter as it moves from uh, the, the, uh, really the time of Jesus all the way through the end of the tribulation period. He's describing to them what the world is going to endure in the last days. And interestingly, here's what he says. It's a very vivid picture. And every, every uh, husband and wife who have children will understand this illustration, particularly the moms in the room. You'll understand. In Matthew 24 and verse 8, he says that this series of events will progress like a woman in labor. Look at it. Chapter 24, verse 8. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. What he has in mind there, when he talks about the beginning of sorrows, he, he's talking about how that labor begins. When a woman is, is going to deliver a child, labor begins um, and it progresses. It has a, a beginning point which, ladies forgive me, which begins rather mildly. I know, I know, it's a relative statement. It begins rather mildly and then it increases, right? It increases in intensity and severity, and in frequency. So the labor pains, which might be, you know, I don't know, eight or 10 minutes apart and, and not so uh, severe in the beginning, at the end of labor are very intense and they're just moment after moment after moment. That's what labor looks like. That's how it progresses. Jesus says, this is what it's gonna be like in the end. That, that the difficulties the world will go through um, will intensify as we near the end and their frequency will uh, increase as well as we near the end. And then in chapter 24 and verse number 14, he says, now during this time, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom is going to be preached. Look at chapter 24, verse 14. This good news of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all the nations, and then shall the end come. Now I want to be very, very clear to tell you that Jesus is asked a question about the end of the world, the end of the age. How's the world as we know it going to end? And he doesn't say to them, what are you talking about, the world end? The world's never going to end. I mean, we're just going to keep going on and figuring it out, right? He doesn't say that. He says, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, this is what it's going to be like, and then the end is coming. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus, who died and rose from the dead, has said to you, the end of the world is coming the end of the world as we know it, the end of the age is coming. In fact, we should, we should write this down somewhere in our notes. Why don't you jot this down? What we're learning in this passage today is that the end of the age, the end of the world as we know it, corresponds with the beginning of the kingdom age. There is a kingdom that's coming. The kingdom of God is coming to the earth. We're going to see that in the passage when we read it. But the end of the age is going to correspond with the kingdom age. The end of the world as we know it is going to correspond with the beginning of Christ's kingdom. The end of the current age is going to usher in a new and glorious age under Christ. And the moment that this transition will occur, when the current age gives way to the new age, when the kingdom of man falls and the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God is established, the, the moment in which that transition will occur is the exact moment when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. That's the time when it happens. 
That's the question they asked in chapter 24, verse 3, when they said, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Those two things go together. And then in Matthew 25 and verse 31, which is where I'm going to begin reading the text, Jesus speaks about the coming of the Son of Man. You see verse 31, I'm in chapter 25 now, verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Now, something that we ought to notice is that in verse 31, Jesus gives us a lot of detail about what is entailed in the coming of the Lord, what, what all that, that appearance of Christ will bring to pass. Look at it in verse number 31. Again, he says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, when he shall come in all of his glory. Now, the word glory means his revealed honor. So on the day when Jesus is no longer simply the proclaimed one of the scriptures in the church, the one meek and mild and lowly from 2,000 years ago, but on the day when that proclaimed one becomes the present one, becomes the one who shows up and who is physically here, that's what it will be like when he comes. It's not a spiritual appearance of Jesus. It's not a, a day when there's simply a, an awareness of Christ that's greater in the world. It is the day when Jesus actually comes back in all of his glory. Let me read to you what Revelation says about that. You know it. Many of you do. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 7 says, Behold, he comes with clouds, or he comes in the clouds, and every eye shall see him. Every eye shall see him. Pop quiz, how many eyes are going to see him? Every eye. Is that every Christian eye? Is that every Baptist eye? Is that, it's every eye, right? Good eyes, bad eyes, bifocal eyes, progressive lens eyes. Every seeing eye is going to see him. It says, and they which pierced him shall see him. All the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of his coming. Because of him. That is that when he comes, his glory as king will be revealed to the entire world. Also in chapter 25 and verse 31, it says when he comes, he's not coming alone. Uh, it says that he is coming with all of his holy angels. Now, can we agree together that's a lot of angels? Amen? A lot of angels. Revelation talks about 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands Luke 2 talks about the heavenly host appearing in the heavens when Jesus was born to declare his birth. I don't know how many angels we're talking about, but I want you to know that when he comes, it's essentially this. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Here it is. On the day that Jesus returns, heaven is relocating to earth. What a day that's going to be. All of his holy angels are going to come with him. And then he says in verse number 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his revealed honor and his glory with all of the holy angels with him, he will then sit upon the throne, he will sit upon the throne of his glory. He'll sit upon his glorious throne. Now, does that mean if every eye will see him and all the kindreds and nations of the earth will wail because of him and he's coming with all of the holy angels and he's going to sit upon a throne, is that a localized throne? Will it be the throne of Weaverville? 
Is it spiritualized to be the throne of our hearts in that day? Or should we believe that when Jesus comes in all of his revealed glory with all of his holy angels, that he's going to sit upon a throne and, and that scepter, that rule, that reign will extend to all the world? Well, since you asked the question, and I'm so glad you did, let me answer it for you. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 which we often think of as a Christmas verse, though it's not. Verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace of the increase, that is the extent of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. So the Bible says that Jesus is coming to rule the world, to sit upon the throne of David, that he will sit upon that glorious throne, all of his holy angels with him in full revealed glory. Now, this is what the Bible says is one day going to happen. And when it does, when it does, then the kingdoms of man, the kingdoms of the earth will pass away and the kingdom of God will appear, will arrive here on earth. Now, I should um, take just a moment and make sure that you understand that the coming of Jesus Christ that I'm describing to you today is not to be confused with the coming of Christ in the clouds to rapture his church or to catch his church away. These are two different events, or maybe it would be fair to say two different parts of one event. There is, prior to the return of the Lord as King of Kings, there is a moment when Jesus will come and catch his church away. We talked about this last week, about that sudden moment when Christ will come and the church will be removed. So let me spell it out for you. Maybe you'll write this down somewhere. I want to make sure you're not confused about this. If I were to give you a a timeline, a sequence of end-time events, just based on Matthew 24 and 25, here's what I would say to you. That, That Jesus describes that in the last days, the earth, all of humanity, with increasing severity, increasing intensity, uh, more uh, uh, frequent uh, uh, intensity as well, that the earth and all of humanity will be going through difficult seasons, convulsing, almost, like a woman in labor. And that as it nears the end of that, it's more and more intense, then there's going to be this moment, this sudden sounding of the trumpet when Christ will call his church. Thessalonians says it this way, the dead, or Christ himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be called up with them, that is with the dead, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. If you believe that, shout amen. First Corinthians 15, Paul says it this way, we shall not all sleep, that is we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, then we will be called up and taken to heaven. This is the rapture. And this could happen at any moment. In the last days, an intensity of the birth pains, and then the rapture will occur. Following the rapture, there will be a period of tribulation. I'm not going to preach about it today, but, but the Bible says there will be a time, a season. Scripture calls the, the time of Jacob's trouble. We call it the, the 
tribulation period. It will last seven years. And during those seven years, all of the events of Matthew 24 will unfold fully during those events. And at the end of that uh, seven-year period, at the end of that season, when all of these events of Matthew 24 have unfolded completely, then in that moment, Matthew 25, 31, then Jesus will come and he will return to the earth in power and great glory. And that event is what is described in our text today. So let's read it. Matthew 25 and verse number 31. The Bible says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered, you might want to underline that word, gathered, it's an important word these days, before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, he shall set the goats on his left hand, and then the king will speak. Verse 34, the king shall say unto them on his right hand, the sheep, come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered or hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked I was, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see thee hungered? When did we feed thee? When did we see you thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take, or took you in or naked and clothed you? And when did we see that you were sick and in prison and we came to you? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto, the, unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. And then he shall say to them on the left hand, the goats, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. And then shall they answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger, estranged and naked or sick or in prison? And did not minister unto you. And then shall he answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not unto one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. I mentioned to you as I was beginning to read that passage in verse number 31 that you should underline the word gathered. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory with all his holy angels, I'm sorry, verse 32, before him shall be gathered all nations. Over these last, uh, what, six weeks, we've been talking about the gathering nature of our God. And we've talked about he gathers us for worship and to give us purpose and for protection and a number of things about the gathering character of our God. And it's seen again here in Matthew 25 that God is a gatherer. But here in this gathering, Something is different. The gathering that takes place here is a gathering for judgment. By the way, um, every shepherd gathers his sheep ultimately for the purpose of separating them. 
It's always, at the end of the day, what it's about because every sheep, every lamb has a purpose and it will be separated unto that purpose. And if you have a shepherd who is oftentimes, as the case, will be shepherding both sheep and goats, as in this illustration, he will gather them together and then that shepherd is always dividing the goats out from among the sheep. Why? Because goats are troublemakers. That's what, that's what they do. They cause trouble. They don't follow. They, they, they don't get along. They're always headbutting one another and headbutting the sheep and, and they're just troublemakers. And so he's constantly trying to, trying to keep them separated. The purpose of the gathering is ultimately the separation or the dividing of them. It might be that a shepherd or more than one shepherd are sharing pasture land and all of the sheep from each flock are mingled together and the shepherd needs to be able to call his sheep and separate his sheep. The gathering is about separating. The principle applies in the harvest as well. When you take a harvest, you gather in all the fruit, but the bad fruit is separated out from the good fruit, right? You, you have to get it all in to know what's good and what's bad, and then you separate it. The same thing's true in the parable, I believe in Matthew 13, of the, of the wheat and the tares, how that a man sowed good wheat, good seed, and great wheat fields were growing, but the enemy came and sowed tares among the weed. And the workers came and said, do you want us to go through and try to pick out all the tares now? Just cut them out. He said, no, you'll hurt the weed as well. Leave them alone. But when the harvest comes, we'll deal with the tares. When the harvest comes, you harvest it all. Then we'll separate the tares from the wheat and we'll burn the tares. The harvest is about the gathering for the separating. Oftentimes the Bible speaks about a threshing floor and we don't know a lot about threshing floors because most of us don't thresh wheat. But, but when you would gather in the wheat in that community in Jesus' time, you would gather all the wheat and you would take all of the kernels, the wheat kernels, and you would just throw them on this stone flat threshing floor. They would lay there amongst all of the chaff and the broken parts of the stalks and the stems and all of the parts that you couldn't use. And you needed to be able to get the, the good kernels that's going to make your meal and your bread. You got to get that separated from all the bad stuff. So in the threshing floor, you would take a winnowing fork, like a pitchfork, and you would stick it under all of that, that laying there and you would toss it up in the wind. And what would happen? The wind would come and blow the chaff away and then only the kernels would settle back down, you would gather it to the threshing floor so that at the threshing floor, the separation could happen. What Jesus is teaching in Matthew 25 is this, there's going to be a gathering one day. And that gathering will be for the express purpose. The point of the gathering is about separating. And the separation that will occur is based only on the righteous judgment of Jesus. Verse number 32, before him shall be gathered all nations. The event being described, what Jesus is talking about is an event called the judgment of the nations. That's why it says in verse 32, gathered before him will be all nations. It is this event where all of the Gentile nations, all of the people of the Gentile nations are gathered before King Jesus. And when will it happen? Well, the Bible tells us, verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. At the moment of Christ's return, this judgment will occur. At the moment when he sits upon, verse 31, his glorious throne, then all of the people from the Gentile nations 
will be gathered. And what's the purpose of the judgment? It is simply to determine who among them will enter into the kingdom of God, which Christ has come to establish, and who will not enter into the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, again, I want to be perfectly clear to make sure you understand, this judgment being described in Matthew 25 does not include us. If you know Jesus, look at your neighbor and say, whoo boy, right? This does not include us. Because we are the raptured church, and so we will already be with the Lord. When he comes in Matthew 25, 31, we're coming with him, along with all the holy angels as well. The Bible says that we will return, Revelation 19, we will return with him. So this does not include us. We're already with the Lord. This judgment is for those who have lived through the tribulation period. They've lived till the end of the tribulation. They've lived unto the coming of the Lord And they will then be judged. That's what's in view in Matthew 25. Let me just make a couple of points of application. And then I'm going to do something really, really important before I let you leave this building or let you leave that room at Merriman or until you sign off online. That is that I want to invite you to trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today. And I want you to come running to Christ and to find his forgiveness. And you'll see why that's so important couple of things that I want you to write down. Number one, you should know that God has prepared a kingdom for the blessed. And he has. God has prepared a kingdom for the blessed. This kingdom is spoken of in verses 34 of chapter 25 down through verse number 40. Now, by the way, let me, not to confuse it, and I I, I don't have time to get into the weeds of this, but let me just say that the kingdom being described here is not heaven. It's, the, it's, a, it's a millennial reign of Christ on the earth, but it ushers us into uh, heaven. It, it, it uh, gives way to heaven ultimately and leads us into that eternal kingdom. But it's this, this kingdom of, of Christ on the earth. The Bible describes in verse 34 down through verse number 40 um, the words that the king, King Jesus, speaks to these sheep on his right hand. And look at verse number 34. It says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, the sheep, he will say to them, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Can you imagine the elation of these tribulation saints? These are people who have trusted in Christ during the tribulation period. They have trusted in Christ to their own peril. Many of their brothers and sisters in Christ in the tribulation have been martyred for their faith, but they have somehow survived and made it to the very end, and they've seen Christ return, and now they're standing before him. Can you imagine the elation in their hearts of his saying, come, come into the kingdom. Here's the way to say it. Come out of that tribulation. Come out of that suffering. Come out of that difficulty. Welcome into the kingdom of God. Come, inherit the kingdom, you blessed of my Father. Those entering the kingdom are, according to verse number 34, blessed by God. Blessed by God. When he says, come, you blessed of my Father, it simply means, come, those of you of whom my Father speaks well. I love this. Come into the kingdom, those of you of whom my father speaks well. It would be sort of like this. If you line up every kid in Buncombe County 
and I had to go through and speak over those kids, I would say, cute kid, cute kid, cute kid, mean kid, mean kid, why are you so mean? Nice kid, nice kid, cute kid. And then I would come to my kid and I would go, my kid. And there would be something so special in my heart. The words that would come out of my mouth about my children or my grandchildren now would be good. They would be blessed. I would speak favorably of them. Here's what it says. You ready? That the God of heaven looks over the people of the earth and he says, person, 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 kid, kid, my kid, come, my kids, come, you blessed of my father. Adopted would be a way to say it. Come, you blessed of my father. Then he says, verse 34, come, receive the inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. You're going to receive this wonderful inheritance of the kingdom, living in this great kingdom. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that will never fade away, and it is reserved in heaven for you. And you know what that means, don't you? You know what it is to travel all day, have a long, arduous, grueling day of travel, and you're tired, and you're dirty, and you hadn't had a shower in 24 or 30 hours, and and you finally make it to your hotel room, and they they check you in, and you swipe that card, and the room opens up, and, and it's a nice, clean room with a warm and comfortable bed and a shower, and it's like, come in. This has been prepared just for you. Can you imagine that day when the tribulation saints are invited into this glorious kingdom of Jesus prepared for them from the foundation of the world? Those who are, who are coming into the kingdom on that day are blessed of the Father, and they are promised an inheritance. And then they're given eternal life, Verse number 46 is very clear to say, and these, speaking of the goats, shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous shall go unto or into life eternal. Well, you know that God's prepared a kingdom for the blessed. My question is, are you blessed? Are you among the blessed? Now, again, these being, being invited into this kingdom on that day are people living in the tribulation, but we can be blessed even today and have Christ as our brother and God as our father. Secondly, As true as it is that God has prepared a kingdom for the blessed, secondly, God has prepared eternal punishment for the lost. And I want you to hear me, and I say this with a broken heart, but I will tell you the truth. God has prepared, as surely as he's prepared a kingdom for uh, for the blessed, he has prepared eternal punishment for the lost. In fact, verse number 41 records perhaps some of the most tragic words in all the Bible. Look at it, chapter number 25 and verse number 41. And shall he say unto those on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire. Now that's terrible, we're going to talk about it. But here are the really sad words. Everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is a prepared place with a specific purpose, but I want you to know it was not prepared for you. It was not prepared for people. People were made in the image of God and God loves you and wants nothing more to redeem your soul, to adopt you into his family and to say of you, my kid. He didn't prepare hell for you. He prepared hell, verse 41 is clear, for the devil and his angels, those demons that followed him. 
Hell is prepared for Lucifer. And if you go to hell, you will go there against the desire of Almighty God. Every person who survives the tribulation, rejecting Christ on this day, will hear these words, verse 41, depart from me. Tragic words. You might say it this way, get out, leave. You can't see me anymore. The word actually, depart, means to pass away. To pass away. It's what we say when someone that we love passes away. They're no longer with us. We can't see them. We can't touch them. We don't have fellowship with them. Our great hope, if they knew the Lord, is that we'll be with them in heaven again. But, but on the earth, they're gone from our sight. And this is what Christ says to everyone who rejects him. Out of my sight, depart from me. Depart from me, you cursed. You cursed. Now, the word cursed doesn't mean, well, this is just the way it worked out for you. You got dealt a bad hand. You were just cursed, I guess. No, the word cursed means to pass judgment on. It means that up until that very moment, there was hope. Up until that very moment, there could have been repentance and faith. But in that moment, when Christ comes, judgment is settled. In that moment, when Christ comes, the sentence is handed down. It cannot be reversed. They are judged, cursed. It means to pronounce Judgment. And then, verse number 41 says, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Verse number 46, And these, the goats, shall go away into everlasting punishment. So you must hear me say this today. All of you, no matter where you're listening to me, you must hear me say That as surely as there is a heaven to be gained and God has prepared a kingdom for the blessed, there is a hell that is a prepared place for the devil and his angels. But if you reject Christ, that lake of fire will be your destination. There is no mistaking it. These people sat on the left, identified as goats, judged by Christ, will go away into eternal punishment. And so my plea with you today is don't be among that number. My my heart for you today is that you would believe the gospel and you would believe the good news and know that Christ loves you so much that he died for you. And that if you'll trust in him, turning from your sin, trust Christ, then heaven will be your home and hell will no longer be your concern. Now, the final thing I want you to know is that nobody gets a pass on this. Nobody gets a pass on this. Write it down this way. All people will be gathered. All people will be gathered and divided in judgment. Now, again, we're talking about the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25. And if you'll notice, we've talked about two different groups of people in this judgment. Sheep and goats, right? Those going to heaven, those going into the kingdom, those going into punishment. Two groups of people. But there's a third group of people. There's obviously a third group of people because this group of people are mentioned in verse number 40 as my brothers, the least of these my brothers. Jesus speaks of some people who are his brothers. When did we see you hungry and gave you food? When did we see you thirsty and gave you something to drink? When did we see you naked and clothed you and in prison and visited you and sick and came and helped you? When did that happen? And he said, he said, you did it when you did it unto my brothers. 
The goats asked, well, when did we not do it? Well, you did it not when you neglected to do it for my brothers. Who are the brothers of Jesus? Who are the people that are being referenced? If you're at the, great, at the, at the judgment seat of, I'm sorry, at the judgment of the nations, and you're standing there, and Jesus is talking about how you've helped those who are sick and hurting and, and, and uh, homeless and, and naked and, and hungry and thirsty, who's he pointing to when he says, and that you did it to these my brothers? I'll tell you who he's pointing to. He's pointing to the Jewish people. His brothers in this context are the nation of Israel who during the tribulation are enduring great suffering, an onslaught, and the attempt of the Antichrist to annihilate them. And during the tribulation period when they're under such attack, and ultimately they'll come to faith in Christ, by the way, but during that time there will be some Gentiles, just like there was in the Holocaust, some Corey Ten Booms and some Oscar Schindlers who will do good to them, who will feed them and protect them and hide them and guard them. And that kindness and that compassion will be the evidence of their salvation. They're not going into the kingdom because they're good to the Jewish people. They're going into the kingdom because they have been made righteous by Christ and that righteousness is evidenced by their kindness and compassion toward the Jewish people. Now, by the way, there's a principle here. It's not really the point of the passage, but I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it to you. It is, that, it is that we serve Jesus as we minister to those who are hurting. Again, it's not the point of the passage, and the, the passage is very specific and intentional about what's happening, when, and with whom. But the, the, the application is very uh, practical for us, that I want to be kind and compassionate to all people, and in so doing, uh, I am ministering in the name of Christ. All people will be gathered and judged. Not at the judgments uh, of the nations. Uh, the Christians caught up in the rapture will go to the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. But we will give an account for our works. Uh, all of humanity at the great white throne judgment, all of lost humanity will stand there and be judged. Those who live through the end of the tribulation will be judged at the great white throne judgment. But the point is, every person will be judged one day. No one gets past. And so, where do you stand? If, if you were at this judgment that's described in Matthew 25, and the king, Jesus Christ, has come in all of his glory. He's seated upon a throne. He's surrounded by all the angels in heaven. He's gathered all of the world before him, and he's going, sheep goat, sheep, goat, lamb, goat. Which side are you going on? The answer to that question has nothing to do with your good works, your right behavior, your church attendance. It has everything to do with have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? You say, Pastor, I don't have to, you know, you said that day can't come for at least seven years. I don't have to worry about that today, right? That's at least seven years from now based on the timeline I gave you earlier. Well, there's another separation that will come and it could come today. And that is when Christ calls his church out and he will separate from the earth every follower of Christ. And then those who have rejected Christ will be left behind. Which side are you on? Why don't you give your heart to Jesus today? Why don't you trust in Christ? Don't go to hell. Let me beg you, do not end up in hell that was not created for you. And God loves you so much 
that he sent Jesus to die for you, to take the judgment that you and I should endure. Christ took it on the cross. And I invite you to receive his grace today.